What time is it? What time is it? What's the time? What time is it on the clock of the Earth? On the clock of the Earth. It's on the clock of the Earth. What time is it on the clock of the Earth? What time is it on the clock of the Earth? It's time to pay attention. It's time to forgive ourselves for making mistakes. I think that the time is the future and that we maybe should involve our children in the future that we are shaping. Yeah, you have a lot of people saying, listen to your feelings and so on, but maybe it's not so silly as maybe a lot of people find it. It's time to listen to all the little creepy crawlies that are crawling around the earth. Hello X, and welcome everyone to podcast episode 4, the second part of What's Eating You. I'm Christine Sin. I'm Nelly And I'm Annalene Leonard. And I'm Valentin. Months. So what's eating you on the things that we're going to discuss? So what is eating me? My mother would say dust mites. But if you mean what's bothering me or what's on my mind or what are we going to talk about in this podcast episode, then... What's eating me is the future of food in the Arctic. So this is the theme of this season of Hello X. And as we all know, we need food to give us energy. But who has eaten who before this energy reaches my plate? Today we're going to listen in on five scientists at a Hello X workshop talking about how we, humans, might be impacting the way energy moves through the Arctic ecosystem. Before we get into the main discussion, we want to give a short update on our latest live event. Ice9 celebrated the launch of the Hello X website and this podcast with a march to the future through the streets of central Tromsø. Leading our motley crew of folks in funny hats was Tromsø's one and only all-female drum corps, the Tromsa Tamborene, followed by four people carrying a symbolic wooden boat made by Valentin out of willow branches. This boat carries dreams. Dreams of the future. Dreams of birds and fish. Dreams of copepods. Dreams of being better. Of feeling better. Better on this earth. Thanks, Chin Keeler, for playing drums with me at the parade. And if you want to see photos and videos of us with seaweed hats and boat hats, please go to hellox.me. And if you want to answer the question, what time is it on the clock of the earth? Take a voice memo and email us at hellox at ice dash nine dot no that is ice dash nine dot no 
That question, what time is it on the clock of the earth, is inspired by activist Grace Lee Boggs. And I read about that in Emergent Strategies by Adrian Marie Brown. Thank you, Adrian. As many of you have been listening to the podcast before know, HelloX is asking in this cycle, what kind of food is X going to eat in the Arctic in 50 years? So that's 2068. Now, in order to help us to anchor this question and the fiction about X in real science, Hello X and Ice9 are incredibly proud to partner with the Fram Center. Fram in Norwegian is an acronym for High North Research Center for Climate and the Environment. It also means forward. As in Rett Fram, go straight ahead. It was also the name of an extraordinary boat that was sailed by the even more extraordinary Norwegian explorer, scientist, diplomat, humanitarian, and Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Fritjof Nansen. Fram is based in Tromsø. It consists of scientists from 21 institutions. That's a lot of institutions. And they're involved in interdisciplinary research and outreach in the fields of natural science, technology, and social sciences. We have been working with five of the six flagship research programs. That includes the program on sea ice in the Arctic Ocean, effects of climate change on sea and coastal ecology, effects of climate change on terrestrial ecosystems, landscapes, society, and indigenous peoples, hazardous substances, and environmental impact of industrial development in the North. So the reason we wanted to work with scientists is because there are a lot of really important changes that are happening and these changes are, in many cases, caused by us in the present. So this can include, of course, climate change, CO2 production, it can be ocean acidification, it can be pollution, but also the effects of industry like fishing or aquaculture, which are really important here in the North. Okay. On to meet the scientists. We invited four scientists that are affiliated with the Fram Center. This included who is a member of the Institute of Marine Research. She's also the flagship leader for the research project at Fram on climate change on fjords and coastal ecology. Liz is originally from the Faroe Islands. She works mainly on effects of climate change on Arctic marine life, from puffins to king crabs but especially the mysterious community of creatures that live at the very bottom of the ocean, which are called benthos. And we also had Pedro. Duarte, a researcher for the Norwegian Polar Institute in Tromsø. Pedro's research is supported by the Fram flagship program on sea ice in the Arctic Ocean. He focuses on Arctic marine ecosystem modeling. Now, hey, what is that? 
This is a fancy term for seeing how several factors link together in an Arctic ecosystem. For instance, Pedro's now looking at how glacial meltwater in Svalbard might affect the food available for seals feeding nearby. And we also had Elina Haltonen from the Institute of Marine Research, a member institute of the Fram Center. Alina studies how aquaculture impacts wild fish populations, which overlaps with the goals of the Fram flagship program on environmental impact of industrial development. And we had Anne Eileen Lennon. Now you may remember Anne was the special guest of episode one. She's an environmental anthropologist who works part-time at Ice Nine on the Hello X team and is working at the Tromsø Polar Museum at the University of Tromsø, another member of the Fram Center. Anne did her dissertation on Greenlandic hunting stories and how such stories can help answer natural science questions. You can find out more about that by going back to episode one, if you missed it. I'm uh, Sigurd Tonsen. Uh, and I'm for diversity, we had Sigurd Tunnison, a philosopher of science at the University of Tromsø. He mainly researches the history reason. of physics and is a member of the Environmental Philosophy Research Group. So we asked these five scientists over to our house, that would be Valentin and my house, and we wanted to get a foundation to begin looking at the question of what X is going to eat in 50 years' time. Now, the question itself seems simple enough, but it actually touches on a fairly big and complicated set of factors. And so we wanted to get some foundation for this. And we wanted to look at where humans sit on the ecological food chain. Now, food chain is sort of the layperson's word for what scientists would call the trophic network. Trophic just means related to feeding and nutrition. Some scientists also think of it as the bioenergetic cycle. How does energy move from the sun through from plants to animals and all the different layers of animals that eat each other, basically? You can also think of it as connections in a biosphere. Human systems are often seen by humans as separate from what we call nature. So we started out with these basic questions, but we quickly got into more existential questions. In a way, food talks about some basic connections in a biosphere. When I say biosphere, I really mean the planet, all the integrated ecosystems, and physical and biological that are on the planet Earth. And it seems to me that often human systems may seem separate from what we sometimes call nature. We are increasingly reminded, however, that the boundary between ourselves and the rest of the biosphere are so blurry that we begin to question whether these boundaries really exist at all. This line of inquiry actually led to another, even more existential question about 
whether there's something wrong with humans in the way we engage in the biosphere. First things first, we wanted to make a visual map of the trophic network, bioenergetic cycle, whatever you want to call it. So we had these little chalkboards that we made, and some of them had words or pictures like the sun. Because we were talking about food, we also had little plates of food. So we had dried cod and dried seaweed. We had some pickled herring. I think we had a tube of fish eggs and various other things that represented different food that we could get in the Arctic. Now, many people might be familiar with the idea of a food chain, or sometimes it's represented as a pyramid with the meat eaters and predators like humans on top, and then you go down to different kinds of animals and then bugs and then plants on the bottom. But one of the first things that we learned is, well, that's wrong. It's not a pyramid. It's a circle. What do you mean by food chain? This comes from a cow. And the cow eats something. Is it like that? Yeah. And then the plants need something? Just one suggestion. Mm. Maybe instead of thinking about this in terms of a pyramid, which gives a completely distorted view of reality, we could think of this in terms of a cycle. It's um, a sort of closed system in a sense that things must be recycled or else mm. they will finish. It will stop. You have to recycle all the time. We also have to have poo. Oh. Poo in the mm. circle, yeah. <laughs> Very important, actually. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so... You write it. Yeah, we can write it. <laughs> so after a little while, instead of having a single loop, we actually had a figure eight, also the infinity symbol, with the marine cycle as one loop and the terrestrial cycle or land-based loop on the other end. We can go this way also because that's the marine. Yeah, this is the like terrestrial. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, you want to do yeah, several circles. Yeah. I mean, it could yeah, be yeah, a like yeah, eight yeah, circle. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how it will yeah, work. That probably looks better. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe we can make the circle bigger so that we can... I'm confused. Um, yeah, I'm confused. <laughs> Me, too. Me too. And then we said, where is X in this figure eight loop? Where do humans belong? We do want to put a human in the cycle because ultimately we're going to use this uh, material that comes from the workshops to start making stories about a woman who lives here x can just be there and she eats a lot of things okay she's in the middle yeah so here we start with the seaweed but seaweed doesn't make poo yet yeah but it grows because of poo yeah Ah, okay Some and poo goes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 Do we need yeah. water? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I was wondering today if we need water in the system. Well, it, it should go also in the. Yeah. Everybody needs water. Yeah. Oh, it's the foundation of all life, isn't it? <laughs> 
we were making this loop of the marine food cycle and the land-based food cycle with our woman of the future X right in the middle, we started to talk about eating closer to the CO2 slash sun slash poo end of the cycle. You might have heard people talking about being part of the post-milk generation, which is what it says on the Oatly drink box, or eating a more plant-based diet. Some talk about meat and animal products contributing to climate change and of being inefficient. So I wanted to ask these whether there was a scientific basis for that. And in essence, there is. The bioenergetic cycle is just not very efficient. Because you lose energy at each level. Approximately 90%. Mm. 90%? 90. In every stage. Mm. Yeah, at every stage? The, the efficiency mm. in nature, the average efficiency in the food chain is around 10%. From starting here, because if you start from the sun to the plants, it's like 1%. If you're lucky, maybe it goes up to 5 But I think this is only in artificial conditions. In natural conditions, if you receive, let's say, 100 units of energy from the sun, you can... Fix here, just one. And from this one, you can produce, let's say, uh, well, this does not eat it, but let's imagine we have some herbivore here, like the sea urchins eating this algae. Uh, from this one produced here, you would produce 0 0.1 sea mm. urchin, you see? Yes. And, mm. then, and it continues this way. How? So it's, very, it's very low efficiency, very low efficiency. While there are a lot of factors to take into consideration, there are some basic biological and physical facts that say that food is more plentiful at the end of the cycle near plants, and that is the CO2 slash sun slash poo end, and that because the bioenergetic cycle isn't very efficient, that... If we were concerned about having more food for more people, then maybe we should be thinking about diversifying what we eat to include more of the things at CO2 slash sun slash poo end. Not that we want to eat poo. Don't get me wrong. then we started thinking about the growing population of humans in the next 50 years. We could be reaching about 10 billion people if we continue at the rate of growth that we're on. With a growing population, that means increased food needs. We already uh, get almost 20% of our proteins from the sea and uh, almost half of it is from aquaculture. And uh, since the fisheries aren't, uh, they, they haven't been increasing for the last 30 years. So all the uh, extra protein has to come from the sea because there's not much um, land areas uh, left unless we cut the rest of the trees. Uh, so uh, I think aquaculture will be a big feature in the future uh, on our plates, including algae culture. So I think that would be a theme that I think would be important for X in the future. One of the things we were thinking of was how does climate change, for instance, or pollution or some of the other things, but mainly climate change, how might that affect the ecological food cycles? And 
Elena, whose main subject of research is in aquaculture and the impacts of aquaculture on wild fish populations, started to talk about why aquaculture is potentially so important in the future, but also some of its problems. Yeah, well, climate change will mean uh, from the aquaculture perspective that you'll be able to maybe have different, more species that you uh, can grow up here in the Arctic, but also that uh, there will be more diseases spreading up here and the diseases might have quicker life cycles. Aquaculture is so big in Norway because we have these open net pens. So the sea is kind of taking care of the cleaning up um, the mess you can't continue like that, especially with the diseases spreading. So there's a big pressure to getting these big closed systems, either on land or on sea. Most aquaculture in Norway produces only one species, mainly salmon. When salmon are raised in crowded nets, they tend to attract an unpleasant and very tenacious type of lice. In addition to increasing pressure to move such high-intensity aquacultures from open to closed pens, there are also proposals to mimic wild ecosystems by cultivating fish with other species like mussels and seaweed to help control pollution and disease with less chemicals while also producing more types of food from aquaculture. And also in the closed circles where you have multicultures like algae and mussels and sea cucumbers eating everything, all the rest and the poo that the fish produce. So, so it's a multitrophic aquaculture. Exactly. I think that's also... a Definite trend. Uh, I'm not a specialist in aquaculture, so this is if I say something wrong, please correct oh, yeah? me. But my impression is that most of the aquaculture was based on a, a more or less dystrophic level because people wanted to buy fish, right? Mm -hmm. uh, especially in Europe and North America, we are used to, to eat fish that are carnivores. So the production of one fish like that, because it's not at the basis of the food, it's not close to these guys, it means that you, you, you need a lot of energy before you get there. As you can probably tell, aquaculture is a hot topic amongst researchers in Norway. This is because aquaculture is an $8 billion a year industry, which in 2016 produced about 1.18 tons of salmon. And what about the future of aquaculture? At least uh, Norway has ambitions to five double it in the close future. Well, at least for salmon. We are going to increase the production of salmon. It has to happen most here in northern Norway because there's no more place in western Norway or southern Norway. When Alina talks about five doubling the amount of salmon aquaculture, what we're talking about is 32 times the amount of salmon farms, most of that increase happening in northern Norway. So that's something to think about and something we will check out later this season if that's something that we want and what the impacts of that might be. Those estimates, though, are based on current dietary trends. So if we didn't want to have that much salmon aquaculture, that follows that we would also change our diet in the future. It depends, again, how our habits change because we most have likely have to eat less fish and meat and go more to insects and algae and... Vegetables. Soya beans. <laughs> Soya beans. Yeah. Plant-based and mm. yeah. Mm. And plants or insects or or something. When you say many double, that means like exponential or mm. yes. Well all the so. uh, curves I've been seeing there, all these hockey stick curves, so it's uh definitely increasing actually. 
as we started to get deeper and deeper into aquaculture and how multi-trophic aquaculture could be a better way to grow things, or maybe instead of growing carnivorous fish like salmon, we could be growing seaweed and other kinds of algae, Liz started asking a much harder question about whether or not we really wanted agriculture in the sea to be the way that agriculture is on land. Are we going to try to control nature by creating a nature-based insight, something that we can absolutely control? Or are we going to harvest nature in a sustainable way so we don't need this mm. multi-trophic aquaculture that we completely control with all these diseases and mm. things that is coming out of it? So I think that's also one thing we might look into. What I see aquaculture is industry itself or land-based culture where we have this field with corn cows and pigs. So it's a way of controlling the food supply. So we will try to explore the sea too in the same way. But it's also very interesting to think what went wrong in evolutions since we was pushed up on the top of the food chain. We have a much bigger brain, much more place for our brain because our jaws got smaller because we started yeah. using fire to cook our high-energy meat. And we had time to uh, develop our skills in order to modify the environment and even eat even more uh, high-energy foods. Mm -hmm. So now we can start to reduce our brain to get it smaller yeah. and get bigger jobs for the vegetarian. No, 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 but so. the jobs were for being able to eat the raw meat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just kidding. So while Liz and Alina were talking about what's wrong with humans from the perspective of human evolutionary history, Pedro started to look at it from the viewpoint of the present and how present day agriculture works on the assumption that we're in control of nature to a degree, that we control a cornfield, for instance. But scientists who model systems like Pedro see that this nice picture is a little too simple. The truth is that even in the field, there is a lot happening that we do not control. And that actually, the production we, we take from the field depends to a great extent of many processes that are going on in the soil, for example, mm. that we do not control at all. Support systems. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are many things. So I agree that, uh, in a sense, you seem to be more in control of what is going on in the field. But if you look at the field, from the same perspective, you are looking at, let's say, a salmon culture. You see, you have the field, but the field is only one thing. You can have a forest side by side with the field. You can have a coastal area. And where does the ecosystem end? You know, this yeah, is a, you know, mm. so, so the complexity is, is, continues to be very high. Mm. But... Uh, at some level, we are simplifying things to make them more efficient uh, mm -hmm. from our very specialized perspective. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, our big sin, because mm -hmm. we've lost this kind of uh, almost instinctive capacity that human beings have to kind of live in some harmony with nature. We, we lost this in the modern societies. We, we don't care about this. We are driven by uh, economic goals and things like that. So we just want to produce, produce. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I think that this, uh, the Industrial Revolution and all these economic theories behind the Industrial Revolution were the big, excuse me for the word, the big f 
I think it was you know, when we moved in towns, yeah. when we have had more than people living on one farm. So when we aggregated, I think it already happened then, because yeah, then yeah, we yeah. started specializing. So at this point, people are getting really passionate. We're talking about growth economy, oversimplification, specialization, aggregation into urban areas. And then Liz brings the conversation back to a question that she had before about whether or not we're going to try and manage nature. I do say managing nature, but that's not what we are doing. We cannot manage in nature. Or maybe we have tried before by shooting all the whales because we want the cut and not the whales should eat the cut. So that is managing the nature, but that is not what we are doing. We are managing human activities. And that's the only thing we can do. Because one thing that we need to realize and understand deeply, deeply, deeply inside our souls, that the complexity of nature, we can never control that. And we could probably never understand it neither. So we just have to follow. So we are part of nature and we have to live within this pulsating dynamic who is fluctuating and changing all the time. Because this is how the world of the planet has been since the early mornings. It has been changing all the time. So we are part of that. So the only thing that we can do with this fluctuating, changing, uh, ever dynamic system is to try to adapt our human activities according to this. So when the cut stops start to move down because something happens on the other side of the planet or something else, we have to regulate our fishery according to this drop down. And then when the cut comes back as it is today, we have tons of cod in the Barents Sea. We can go out and fish a lot more, but it's more the nature who gave us the, the cod, but we have to manage our human activities according to that. So I am actually very optimistic for the future to manage human activities according to the understanding of what we have of nature. And while Anne agrees that it's important to manage human behavior, she points out that because of inequality, there are a lot of humans that are just struggling to survive. And I have a question because what about like other places of the world where they maybe don't have the same knowledge or the education and maybe they don't have another option of exploiting these different species? I agree to your idea and also how environments always have changed and people should in some way follow these environmental variations. But I just think that we are in a state today where there are some places in the world where they don't have the same possibilities as others to follow this fluctuation or the knowledge to do it or that they have to do it. So at the end of this discussion, we'd been all the way from zooplankton to inequality and how that might make it hard for humans to manage themselves in relationship to the biosphere. We all sat down and ate dinner together. Valentin cooked an amazing meal. You're going to hear some clinking of plates and dishes and forks and people munching, which we think is appropriate because this episode is called What's Eating You? And it's about food. 
It was lovely. Did you bake the bread yourself? Yeah. It's really nice. There's more nice. bread. Do you use yeast? We had it on the table before. It's um, mm. sourdough. Sourdough. Mm. Okay. From the air. It's coming from the air, yeah. But that sourdough, um, I did not start. I got it from a woman who got it from a woman in Russia. That's how it gets. <laughs> <laughs> so during dinner, we started to talk about all the normal things. Family. We started to get on the subject of kids. So Alina, Sigurd, and all the rest of us, so that's uh, me and Valentin and Annalie and Marina, don't have any kids. And Eileen has three young kids. Liz and Pedro have kids about the age that X will be in the Hello X stories. They're in their early 20s. This is that exciting and terrifying period where many people have left home and started out on their own, testing out who they are and what they want to do. We talked a little bit with Liz and Pedro about their daughters. Do you feel that your kids are very different from you and your generation? Like if you try and think of yourself at that age, do you think it's, are they very different or? Well, I think mine are smarter than apples. <laughs> that is not different anyway. <laughs> smarter. And, and much better people. I think that uh, I was very lucky with them. Yeah. But they're girls, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I, I, I was very lucky with them, actually. Very lucky. Even when they were in this mm. more critical period and all that. They seem very, very wise all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know how this worked out, but uh, I think it was pure luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that my oldest daughter will give me a grandson soon. <laughs> I won't put away too long. Uh, I already told her if you, <laughs> you have to give me two grandsons. But uh, uh, that I never works. <laughs> Assuming that she takes, let's say, more five years. I hope not, but let's say more five years. So it means that by that time that they will be around uh, fifty years old. Why they probably pressure? already have sons and maybe grandsons. But why this pressure? Well, I just missed the time when my daughters were small. You know, that mm-hmm. was the, the most happy time of my life. True. And uh, this can never return on us with uh, grandchildren. So I'm just egoist. I'm just, <laughs> I just want to have fun again. <laughs> Is, what is the year that she... Yeah, ex, ex, 68. 68? Yeah, roughly years, roughly 50 years from now. My grandsons will be already middle-aged people. Yeah, exactly. So they will be... I, they'll I, sort of be running the be show or close to running the show at that time. So we're not going to find out what's happened to X. So people were dreaming about X and started thinking, half-joking about X becoming a vegetable. So talking about DNA editing, so exactly. X should have so a, she's uh, eating some vegetables and then lay in the sun. And exactly. Mm, she should have a... Uh, she's, she's, she's green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she should have a green skin. She stays off an hour outside and that's okay. Mm. She's that's okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> She should go and be a vegetarian. Vegetable yourself. Mm. 
I imagine that uh, with all these genetic things that mm. uh, people learn to automate some uh, chloroplasts in your skin. <laughs> you take a vacation in the tropics and when you come back you are how, fat. <laughs> exactly, and how nice that would be if everybody was green, there would be no racial issues anymore. There is actually a book by Margaret Atwood where they have bioengineered a new So as I was editing this conversation, and I was listening to this part where I was talking about imagining kids that in my life, growing up and having kids and being parents, and what would their kids be like, I had this desire to call my nephew and to ask him what he thinks about some of these things. Uh, what if his daughter was green, and what would she make him for dinner in 2068? So this is my 12-year-old nephew, Sebastian, whom I found out is also rather interested in efficiency. If humans could photosynthesize, that would be nice. Yeah, I think so too. We just have to inject a little chlorophyll into our cells. So it seems very far off to me. Yeah. Then we'd all be green, though. What, what do you think about being green? And also, we wouldn't make enough energy to fully support ourselves. Compared to plants, we are very... Like, our surface area, compared to our volume, is at a very different ratio than plants. Because plants are very thin for a reason. I'd like a few leaves, wouldn't you? Yeah, I know, but those wouldn't decrease our efficiency to move around. We would create some shade for ourselves. Yes, but What if they were big wings that could photosynthesize and then we could fly? That would be nice. Seems like an impossible goal, but nice. What if you had a green baby? Yeah, I know. I'm perfectly fine with, like, it being green, but I don't think it would be incredibly efficient. Let's say she's cooking in her kitchen, and she's cooking uh, dinner for you, her dad. Yeah? What would she cook? So your daughter's invited you to dinner. What is she going to make for you? So I would say in the future, I'm almost 100% sure that we will not be eating the same things when she is alive because we'll need to help protect the environment. And so people will move away from the traditional farming things like cattle, because it would be incredibly inefficient, and plus all the methane. Maybe we could use tissue engineering, creating an entire tissue from one cell of it, if we still eat meat, of course. We could also be moving into bugs. What kind of bugs might X be serving you for dinner? Caterpillars, I would say. Um, worms. I know that's technically not a bug, but... I mean, that's probably one of the things we'll be eating. And what, how um, do you think she'd prepare that for you, with hoisin sauce? Well, I think we would be eating most of the stuff we have now just made from different things. So instead of, like, meatballs, we would have, like, worm balls, or we would have caterpillar balls. What's for dessert? I think, ooh, this is a hard one. 
I actually think we may keep cows, but for their milk, or we'll engineer milk, tissue engineer milk, we'll miss milk very much. So you would have milk for dessert? No, like, I'd say maybe ice cream, because we'd still be producing sugar. Sugar is not bad for the environment. It may be bad for you. So to have ice cream, would there be new flavors then? Probably. Think of a flavor that you might have in 50 years. It sounds good to you now. I would say that I would still stick with vanilla. Vanilla? You like vanilla? Yeah, I like vanilla, and I don't think that'll change. Besides, vanilla is not particularly bad in any way for the environment. That's it for episode three. Thanks to Liz Lindahl Jurgensen, Pedro Duarte, Elena Haltunen, Anne Eileen Leonard, Sigurd Tunison, and thank you to my nephew Sebastian. And to all the great people who participated in the Hello X March to the Future, including the North Norwegian Art Museum, Polaria Science Center, the Trumse Tamburene, Mikey Weinkov of the People Speak, and Chin Keeler. And all the amazing people who came and cheered us on and marched with us in the streets. So, HelloX partners include Trumsa Municipality, Polaria Science Center, the Nansen Legacy Research Project, the North Norwegian Art Museum, from the High North Research Center for Climate and the Environment with its flagships, Sea Ice in the Arctic Ocean Technology and Agreements, Effects of climate change on sea and coastal ecology. Effects of climate change on terrestrial ecosystems, landscape, society, and indigenous peoples. Environmental impact of industrial development in the north. Hazardous substances. LOX theme music by Metatag on Hell Audio. Additional music on this episode was by Arthur's Huibi Ritchie on Not Applicable. Ice Nine is supported by the Norwegian Art Council, Spadabank Northern Norway, the Free Speech Foundation, Innovation Norway, Auto Public Art Norway. Hello X is produced by Ice Nine with Christine Sin, Annelies Dieberg, and Valentin Mans. Associate producers include Marina Borovaya and Annika Wistrom. Editing and sound design by Nathaniel Gustin. Digital design by Ismet Bakhtiar. Story Generator developed by Ferkel Industries. For your listening enjoyment, we leave you with Up From Sloth from the album Explications by Arthurs, Huibi, and Richie.
Thank you.